yes. And a skilled mediator um, can work wonders. I've had um, a very, very high conflict arbitration um, that they had been, oh my God, it was probably two years. They had been fighting over property and the the mediator arbitrator uh, got them to a settlement on property within 30 minutes. Wow. It was amazing. And the amount of money that could have been saved by just doing that sooner. I'm your host, Heather Maurick from Merrick Law, um, here today with my co-host, Evan Clark. Hi, Evan. How are you? Hello. I'm good. How are you doing, Heather? Uh, I'm well. The sun is shining. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful day. I'm doing well. Evan is a lawyer at Kahane Law in Edmonton, and we have our special guest here with us today, Kim McDonald. Hi, Kim. How are you? Hi, Heather. Uh, doing great today. I made a smarter decisions this week. I tr- I didn't eat spicy chicken wings before this podcast, and I feel really good. <laughs> <laughs> excellent. That's excellent. Um, so I am so super excited today. We have a very special guest. Um, she is, first of all, a dear friend of mine, but also a stellar lawyer from a law, family law firm here in Edmonton. Uh, welcome, Catherine Spafford. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Heather. Hi, Kim. <laughs> Hi, Evan. Thank you for having me. We're so excited to have you here. Um, so I know from being your buddy that um, you have done all the training and are an arbitrator. Um, And I know this is something that I actually have pretty limited experience with. I've kind of participated in one um, and that's about all I know. So I'm really excited that we get this opportunity to pick your brain a little bit today about the whole arbitration process. Well, I don't purport to be an expert, but I'm happy to share my experience both as a lawyer doing arbitration and now as an arbitrator myself. So, um, Heather, first of all, uh, I noticed that you uh, didn't mention Catherine's firm. So, Catherine, what firm are you with? (laughs) I'm with Breyer and McKay. Thanks. And uh, also, dear friends, how did you meet? Heather and Catherine. Catherine, let's let's hear from you. Well, we crossed paths in court before, um, but we really became friends at our mediation course when we were doing our collaborative law training. And that's actually where I also met Kim. So we did a week-long 40-hour intensive mediation training in Calgary. And uh, the rest is history. We all powered through that together. It was a lot of work, but here we are. Yeah, lots of chats, chats at the snack table. That's my um, <laughs> probably <laughs> along with all the skills that we learned, but all the snacks that we had together. Snacks, coffee, wine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, check all the boxes. Um, so I guess the first question I have for you, Catherine, is can you give us like a really broad strokes uh, description of what arbitration is? So arbitration is um, a process by which 
parties in a dispute essentially give decision-making authority to a third party other than a judge. So um, you don't necessarily have to be a, a qualified arbitrator, um, but you should to be responsible. Um, but there are many people that don't have the training that do that. I learned that halfway through my own arbitration training that you actually don't need the designation to do it. Um, but generally, my advice to people is to select someone who has some expertise in the area uh, where they're making the decision. Um, I've just found that, and that would be my comment with mediators, arbitrators, um, anyone who you're hiring to provide a service like that, it's helpful for them to be able to come with some background and understand um, the issues to a certain extent before they enter the room. Okay, so that's really interesting. So you're a family lawyer, are you, and you arbitrate family law disputes, but you can have arbitrations for any area of law. Is that right? That's right. And in fact, when I was taking my arbitration training, there were other people, uh, many actually other people in the course who are not lawyers. So there were some people that worked in construction, there were people who uh, worked in mental health who were um, doing, I guess, some kind of parenting coordination work where they would be making decisions in an arbitral role um, for people who come to them with parenting disputes. Um, but I did find when I was doing the training, I really felt for some of those people that didn't have the legal background because it was incredibly challenging even for a lawyer. Um, and there was a lot of, I think, presumed knowledge that wow. people who don't work as lawyers would probably not have. So um, my impression is that it does help to have a legal background, but no, it's definitely not a requirement. And I'm sure that, you know, my, my experience is limited only to the family law forum. Um, but I'm sure there are a lot of other people that, um, you know, I know there's lots of people that do arbitrations um, in you know, like contract disputes, sports, for example. Um, so lots of different areas that you can use arbitration, but my personal experience is only limited to family. So I was surprised there were a lot of different skill sets coming into that training course. Huh. Yeah, I have a question about that because um, when I think about arbitration, um, the biggest challenge I think an arbitrator faces is writing their decision. Um, you know, you're basically taking the, you're basically taking the position of a judge, equivalent position of a judge. You're make your third party decision maker and um, it has to be a good decision because it can be appealed. And while it doesn't happen very often, it can be overturned um, on appeal. And so that definitely has, I, I'm, I'm guessing it definitely has to be going through your mind when you're writing uh, a decision. Um, so I couldn't, like, I couldn't imagine not being a lawyer and arbitrating something or being a lawyer and arbitrating something in an area of law that I'm not familiar with. Can you talk a little bit to that? Uh, yeah, I, I felt the same way. I mean, the, it was interesting in the course, it was not family law focused at all. In fact, none of the scenarios involve family law and it's been over a decade since I've done anything other than family law. And it was very challenging for me to turn my mind to applying this skill set to say a construction dispute, which was the subject of um, one of the, one of the, the mock exams that we did. And the final one was a 
manufacturing dispute. I mean, it was very dry. As far as I'm concerned, family law is way more interesting to me. Um, but as lawyers, we have we have familiarity with the way that a written decision looks and flows just from our work and reading court decisions. Um, so coming in as someone without a legal background, I think it would be an additional layer of challenge to learn how to write a decision. And you're right, Evan, um, you can be appealed and you really do have to be quite careful when you're writing a decision to make sure that you're not relying on any information or evidence that wasn't actually provided or your own personal knowledge of the law. Um, you're really supposed to only take the information that's given to you. And that can be really challenging too. If you know that an argument like there's a better argument to be made. It's not your place to do that. You have to take the information that's presented to you and make the decision um, based on the law that's presented to you as well. Interesting. Okay. Okay. I have a lot of questions about that, but maybe um, I think before I get into my specific questions about that, could you um, maybe tell us a little bit about what the actual arbitration process looks like? So if you have, um, I, I know you do family law, so let's use that as an example. If you have a couple or a client or a lawyer that reaches out to you, how does that kind of flow generally from beginning to end? So one of the really great things about arbitration is that you, as the person seeking out the arbitrator can decide with the other party how you want the arbitration to unfold. Um, so in terms of what kinds of evidence you want, what you want the process that day to look like. So you can decide that everything is going to be in a written brief. You can decide that you want the parties to be giving oral evidence and there, there will be cross-examination. Like there's a really broad spectrum of options and it's all up to the parties or their lawyers to determine how that's going to unfold. Um, one thing I, one thing that I have learned in my work as a lawyer, um, doing arbitrations, um, is to make sure that that process is really clearly laid out. Um, I think that when people are a little bit wishy-washy with that, that's where misunderstandings and problems can come up where one party says, oh no, we weren't supposed to rely on that or you're not allowed to rely on that. So having as much detail about what kind of evidence can be presented and what the process is, um, it's really important to refine that right at the beginning. And that happens in the meeting with the arbitrator. So either the two lawyers or the two parties would meet with the arbitrator and the arbitrator would go through um, and confirm what kind of process and what kind of evidence uh, they're to receive, set deadlines and that kind of thing. And then in the arbitration with that information, they can manage the process and make sure that it goes smoothly. Okay, so I kind of thought, okay, arbitration, this is sort of like uh, one meeting. You sit down and you hammer it all out, but it's actually a process of meetings and the arbitrator not only makes a decision at the end, but helps guide uh, things along along the way. That's right. Okay. And they usually don't make the decision. Well, so you don't make the decision the day of, like many courts do. Right. Um, you have to issue a written decision, which is called an arbitration award, um, within 30 days. And 
there are certain criteria for drafting the award. So you have to make sure that all of that criteria is met and, and then you issue the award. And then there is an appeal period as well, um, as Evan mentioned. And within that appeal period, um, I've actually had a situation where um, an appeal, well, the appeal period was missed and then the party who wanted to appeal tried to appeal after um, and it wasn't successful. So generally speaking, it's one and done. If okay. you don't appeal, you have to have a, it's a very difficult threshold to get over. So if you miss that deadline. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Interesting. I'm a few steps behind you guys and I'm trying to figure out for like the non-lawyer person, how, like, how do you get involved in arbitration? I always thought that you started with a mediation and then that mediator was also an arbitrator. So they would put on their hat to make final decisions that couldn't be made as a group. But now I'm wondering if people don't always go that route, if they just will sign up with an arbitrator right off the bat and then where do do the lawyers come in for each party mm -hmm. so can you explain to me how those pieces get put together yeah um that's a really good question so you can elect to have it be a mediation arbitration or a med arb um and why do people choose that well it kind of depends um in some cases you may have uh, a file where you know speaking as a lawyer i've had one where I just knew all mediation attempts had been exhausted. There was no way these parties were going to get anywhere. So we didn't want to waste the time and the parties didn't want to waste the money doing another mediation attempt. So we just went straight into the arbitration. Um, I've had other situations where there are multiple issues. It started with a med arb. One of the issues settled, the other one didn't, and then the parties just agreed that particular issue will be remitted to the arbitrator for their decision. And, and there's lawyers, are there not lawyers that also sit in on this meeting? Is that, is that part of it? Yeah, so obviously in my experience, it's always been with lawyers, um, but it doesn't have to be. So anyone can enter into an agreement to arbitrate and you don't have to have lawyers. I, I've actually had clients who did an arbitration before coming to me to deal with additional issues mm -hmm. where they've self-represented. So again, um, that's where the arbitrator, I would expect would have to do a bit more heavy lifting in terms of explaining what is evidence? What do you need to provide to me? Because the average person isn't going to understand evidence and not necessarily know what they need to bring into an arbitration. Um, but ultimately it's up to the people who are submitting to the arbitration. They get to decide um, what information the arbitrator gets and what they base their decision on. Okay. Hmm. That's very helpful. Hmm. Yeah. You said something I want to unpack there a little bit, Catherine, um, talking about evidence and I uh, to give like a, just a little bit of background, if something's going to court, then what is allowed to be presented to the court as evidence is generally strictly um, regulated by the rules of the level of, of the particular court that you're appearing in. How does that work with arbitration? So it's our arbitrators aren't bound by the rules of court, like judges are. Um, so there's a lot more flexibility there. They are bound by 
the rules of natural justice and fairness. Um, this is a really big challenge as an arbitrator. And, um, you know, with when you're dealing with lawyers, it's not so much of a problem. I, I can't really imagine what I would do if faced with parties coming in with really no reliable evidence. But at the end of the day, your job as the arbitrator is to make findings of fact first based on what's before you. And you have to make findings about credibility and how you do that kind of depends on everything, right? It's just like being in court. Um, so you make the findings of fact and then your decision flows from those findings of fact. So your decision has to be supported by the facts that have been put before you, by the evidence that's been put before you. Yeah, so um, to give like kind of a practical example, um, at the Court of Queen's bench level, it, there's plenty of hearings, like unless it's, it's, unless it's allowed to do it like in-person questioning and people speaking in court, normally the evidence put before the court has to be in a special form, right? We call it an affidavit and other evidence has to be attached to the affidavit. Um, and this type of thing is there's like really strict rules about the form of the evidence, how it goes in. And so um, when someone's coming before you as an arbitrator, what are some of the things that uh, they can do? Because, you know, affidavit is kind of a specialized document, I guess. Uh, and if, you, if you're not a lawyer, then you may not even know how to start or what that means. Yeah. Um, I'm not, I'm honestly not really sure how to answer that. I mean, I, I guess as an arbitrator, if you're dealing with someone who isn't represented and doesn't understand what uh, what an affidavit is. I think what I would do is I would suggest that they get independent legal advice. I would probably explain to them, you know, this is typically what kind of evidence you would put before a court, but it's up to you and the other party to determine um, w you know, what kind of evidence you want me to rely on. If it's just a statement of your position and supporting documents, you know, it could be something like, like we are heavily affidavit reliant in family law, but in construction law, for example, you might just be relying on a statement of facts and a contract, right? And it's just a matter of interpreting the contract mm -hmm. and there aren't necessarily contested facts about what's gotten us to this point that the arbitrator has to determine. So again, coming from my experience only doing family law, it's hard for me to say. I've always used affidavits in arbitrations just because people are usually disputing facts. Um, but that's something that you would want to figure out with the arbitrator in advance, hmm. whether you are going to be relying on affidavits or briefs or case law or whatever the case may be. When, when people go to court and a judge is um, deciding on credibility, they often are doing that through oral testimony. So um, to translate that into non-lawyer speak, the judge kind of sometimes has to decide who they believe. And they do that by hearing from each of the people and uh, hearing their stories and sort of through questioning and that kind of thing. Um, they decide on whose version of the facts to accept. So does that similar kind of thing happen in arbitration sometimes? Yes. So you have the option of doing um, questioning um, 
any kind of oral evidence, whatever the format is that you decide in your arbitration, um, you have the option of doing that. And then, you know, if there are issues that would require the arbitrator to make a determination about credibility, then as the lawyer, you may want to consider doing that. Um, if it's just a dispute about, you know, some family law disputes don't necessarily have credibility issues. Like I'm thinking of one I did that involved spousal support. They didn't disagree on the facts. They just disagreed on what the appropriate quantum was. Right. So they needed someone to make a decision about that. In that case, um, I can't really see why oral evidence would have been helpful. We did affidavits um, and you can still, to a certain extent, determine credibility through that if there's conflicting information or, you know, I, I think for the most part, you as the arbitrator really have to be careful and only work within what you're given. Like you can't really make leaps into what you know as your uh, in your career as a lawyer, you just have to really focus in on the information that's been given to you and do your piece as the arbitrator to make those determinations, those findings of fact, and then your decision flows from there. Hmm. That's really interesting. Is there any amount of creativity? Like it sounds rigid. And I, like, I think my impression of, of arbitration coming into our podcast today was that people one of the things that that might be a deterrent is that they don't get a say in things and it, the, the ruling is made and, and they, they don't really they don't really have any um, participation in the decision. But I also read that arbitration can be creative. So I'm trying to reconcile those two thoughts and and I'm hoping you can add some color to that. So I'm not sure that I would agree that it can be creative. I think if there's a med arb process, maybe. Um, one of the cautions that we received in the, the course that I did was um, to make sure that you're not making a decision that is different than what someone has asked you to do. So you can't really take two people that are saying, you know, this is my position. This is what I think you should do. This is my position. This is what I think you should do. And then do something completely different. You don't have the authority to do that. Mm -hmm. So you have to, you have to basically stay in your lane and decide what you've been asked to do. So I, I don't think I would agree that there's a lot of creativity, definitely in the med arb process. Yes. And a skilled mediator um, can work wonders. I've had um, a very, very high conflict arbitration um, that they had been, oh my God, it was probably two years. They had been fighting over property and the arbitrator, the mediator arbitrator uh, got them to a settlement on property within 30 minutes. Wow. And it was amazing. And the amount of money that could have been saved by just doing that sooner. Um, wow. That was actually my first arbitration that I did as a lawyer. And it was a very, very good experience. So there was part of it was contested, uh, sorry, part of it settled in, in the mediation portion. And then part of it went to the arbitration portion. I'm sure some of our listeners want to know who that mediator was. <laughs> Am I allowed to say? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's going on. <laughs> but you don't have to you don't want to it was well i'll say it was linda long um she's a fantastic arbitrator and mediator and very skilled at dealing with difficult people um and in that case it was 
she was an incredible asset to resolving it. So she's great. Yeah, she is great. So um, I guess two elements that I thought of when you were um, sharing that story, Catherine, one was that you said two years was resolved in 30 minutes and the cost that could have been saved. So um, I know that our listeners are probably really interested in how they can get things resolved quickly and um, efficiently money-wise. So um, is there a range of time? Is there a range of cost for um, arbitration or the meta process? So one of the things that's great about arbitration is that you're not stuck with the timelines that the courts have currently, um, Uh which are worse worse than ever, really, in terms of getting um, any kind of dates to deal with substantive issues. Um, I could call up any number of arbitrators that I know tomorrow and probably get a date within two months and be able to tell my client, okay, you're going to have a final resolution here in two months. Um, interestingly, I've had, I've been really been trying to push people into arbitration lately just because of COVID and the additional delays that are really difficult. Um, I've been trying to push arbitration as a really good option for resolution and I'm getting a lot of pushback from other lawyers and parties saying, well, it's too expensive. I don't want to go to court or I, sorry, I don't want to go to arbitration. I want to go to court Uh because I won't have to pay the judge, Uh but what they don't understand or what they choose to not understand (laughs) is the delay um, over the course of two years, preparing for a trial, preparing for a summary trial, it's going to, it's going to exceed the cost of just paying an arbitrator. So um, I rightly or wrongly only ever use arbitrators who are family lawyers. And so their time is charged at their usual hourly rate, which will vary depending on years of experience. Um, I have had, in terms of cost, anywhere from, I think, $5,000 up to maybe $10,000. But it really depends on the number of uh, issues that there are to be resolved. So Uh sometimes it takes multiple days. Sometimes it takes half a day. Right. It really depends. And then, you know, how, how much time it takes the arbitrator to write the award as well is that's a, that's a big part of it because we do have to be very careful um, and very meticulous when we go through the evidence and make sure that it's all addressed. So right. if, you're, if you're listening to the podcast and you couldn't see when Catherine said that what she hears from the lawyers is that uh, they don't want to do arbitration because they, they would rather go to court because then they don't have to pay the judge. I made a, uh, an incredulous face. My face was, was incredulously listening to that. Because I, I think that blows my mind um, because of what you just said, speed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I don't, first of all, court's expensive. It, if you're gonna hire a lawyer to go to court, that's expensive. And, um, and you're looking at, for like a really simple, narrow issue, you're probably paying your lawyer between three and $5,000. For arbitration, um, your legal fees aren't gonna be that much higher than that, but you can deal with everything. Uh-huh. And then, okay, yes, you have to pay, uh, split the cost usually um, for the mediator or an arbitrator, but I mean, if you like, if you litigate the whole thing, 
and you're going to a trial, you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees. Mm-hmm. Not ten, tens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, that kind of blows my mind. And also just like uh, what I tell clients all the time is like, okay, you go to court, you can't speak to the judge. I'll speak to the judge. And the judge is going to listen for not very long and mm-hmm. then make a decision. They don't know who you are. They don't, they're not supposed to know anything about you or who you are. Um, and they're going to make a decision. You're probably not going to like it. And you're not going to feel involved in the process. Whereas, you know, arbitration and especially a mediation arbitration, they get the chance to say everything they could ever want to say. Um, they get to feel like you as the arbitrator or mediator have heard them, have heard their point of view. And I think that from what I've heard from people's experiences makes it a lot easier to stomach the award, even if it doesn't go exactly how they wanted it to, because at least they know they did everything they could. They said what they needed to say and they were heard. So I can't, I I just, uh, I, I don't understand. I'm assuming these are lawyers that, um, were called to the bar a little earlier in time, perhaps. No, actually, no, really? not necessarily. Yeah. No, it, it's interesting. Like, I just think that arbitration hasn't picked up as much steam in Edmonton mm-hmm. as it has in Calgary. Um, but I hope that that changes. Um, and I don't know. Yeah. I don't really know why there's resistance and that surprises me too, Evan. Um, I just really don't know why more lawyers aren't using this option, especially when it comes to property, because as we all know, um, in order to get a decision on property, you're looking at a trial. There's simply no other option mm-hmm. other than arbitration. So it's like, do you want to wait two years for a trial, like a week-long trial, or do you want to go in three months to an arbitrator and get a decision so you can move on with your life? Maybe that's just me projecting my opinions, but I, I personally would just want to get a decision so I could move on with my life. So no, I'll take the yeah. two years because I don't have to pay the judge. So... Right. right. And the interesting thing is like when you do that over the two years, of course, there's more issues that come up, right? Because nothing's been resolved uh-huh. in the meantime. Uh-huh. So you have all these interim applications involving support and parenting and everything. And then, you know, it's 5,000 here, 10,000 there. And by the time you get there, it's like, well, you may as well have just done an arbitration two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing all, that, yeah. The other thing that I really like about arbitration as a lawyer is the ability to pick your judge, right? You can't do that when you go to court. You have no idea who you're going to get. Um, And the reality of the situation is that you can go into court and you can end up with a judge who doesn't really know much about family law um, because they're new or wasn't what they practiced for 40 years or whatever the case may be. Um, or you can choose somebody who, you know, has a lot of experience. And I, the way I say it to my clients is whatever decision is made, you know, it's going to be a well-informed and well-reasoned decision. So you might not like it, but if you're going to pick one of these people to make your decision for you, I can tell you that that person's been practicing 20 to 40 years or 10 years, whatever the case may be. But this is someone who specializes in family law, who knows what they're doing, understands the issues, is going to understand the evidence that they need in order to make their decision. Um, and they're going to write a well-reasoned decision um, addressing all of the issues they've been asked to decide. 
Yeah, I, that's such a great point. And I, I don't think you can understate the uncertainty of a court result because of what you just said there. Like, uh, of course, so if you have a reasonable lawyer on either side of a file, then um, it's not going to court if it's really clear what should be happening, right? Like if it's, um, if it's about spousal support and it's just really clear that this person really has an entitlement to spousal support, the, the lawyer, if, it's, if they're reasonable on the other side, is going to be telling their client, look, if you go to court, you're gonna get ordered to pay spousal support. Let's just wrap this up without going to court. So if you're going to court, then there's probably not like a really clear answer to the problem. And then you go, so already it's like, it's like who knows what's gonna happen. And then you, you throw in the variable of the judge. And um, by the way, like judges sometimes um, have very heavy workloads. We don't have enough. The courts mm -hmm. uh, are, are busier than they should be. Mm -hmm. um, judges sometimes are sitting longer than they're supposed to be for their sessions. So you're getting a judge that probably overworked and may or may not have a really good depth of knowledge about family law and may or may not be in a good mood and may or may not just not like the facts that are coming before them. Uh, and so that just increases the, the variability of what can happen. Like, like I've heard people's lawyers say, going to court is a crapshoot. Mm -hmm. you, you just don't know. It's a roll of the dice. Who knows what's going to happen? Um, and then that decision's done. I mean, yes, you can appeal. Uh, but a lot of the times we're talking about interim decisions, we're not, like not talking about a trial. We're talking mm -hmm. about something uh, that's interim that you're not really supposed to appeal because it's interim. And so you're just stuck with that until you can get to trial or resolve it by consent. So, yeah, I think that just that resonated with me that... Um, that's one of the strengths, I think, of arbitration. You can choose who it's gonna be. And by the way, the arbitrator is choosing to do it at this time that they've scheduled and set aside. They can be you know, going there clear and ready to go um, in a way that judges don't have that ability. They're just, they are in like the sausage factory of law in the courts. Yeah, it's not their choice to be um, there, but they've got a stack of affidavits that they probably just literally physically don't have time to review, and they're very much relying on the lawyers in their four minutes, ten minutes that they've got to make their pitch to do the best job and to make a decision that they can based on what's in front of them, but it's maybe not always the best process, yeah. Whereas um, with arbitration, what I'm hearing Catherine say is that you get to pick how long and how much and what you share with that arbitrator, they really are going to hear out both sides of the story and get a good feeling for what's going on. So I, I can't imagine that can't be a bit more, a bit more satisfying. Um, I have a question. So sometimes what happens, you take a, a something to court with uh, on a matter and you do get a quick interim decision from a court and neither party likes it. Um, and they don't follow it. So what happens with arbitration? Like, do you get a decision at the end or an order? Is it a judgment? What can people do with that? And what happens if one of them really doesn't like it or isn't following it? What's the um, full effect of, of an arbitrator's decision? Uh, 
an arbitration award is binding, just like a judgment or a court order. Okay. Um, so you have the right to appeal and it's, it's just like uh, any other court decision. You cannot just appeal because you didn't like the result. There has to be grounds for appeal. Um, and in arbitration, it's a much higher threshold because really the only grounds for appeal, um, as far as I'm aware, um, is failure to uh, uphold the principles of natural justice. So it, we don't get into as deep of an analysis as we do as lawyers going to the court of appeal on individual issues, just because there is so much more, um, it's so much more broad jurisdiction for arbitrators since they're not bound to the rules of evidence like judges are. Um, so I have actually had some experience with this as well, where one person didn't like the uh, arbitration award and decided not to follow it. So there is a process um, where under the Arbitration Act where you can apply to the court to have the arbitration award turned into an order that you can then register as a, you know, a judgment or register a support order with maintenance or whatever the case may be. Um, and the only the court must grant the order unless there is an appeal underway or it's still within the appeal period. Okay. Um, yeah, so it, it's very, very limited circumstances when a court could not, would not be required to grant an order confirming the award. Okay, okay. Well, that, I think that's good to know because I think that might be a worry too is that you'd um, pay a lot of money, get through a process, um, and then be relying on the goodwill of the other person to be following it. But you can get that um, entered um, and have the same effect as an order. So that's, yeah. that's really good to know. And it immediately has that effect. The only time you would really need, you don't need to take the step to put it into a court order specifically. The only time you might need to do that is if you're dealing with maintenance enforcement or registering a judgment because someone isn't following the arbitration award. Um, they just won't take it uh, in the civil enforcement process or maintenance won't take it. So that's a circumstance where you might need to go through that step. But it's quite simple because the test is really simple. <laughs> right. Is this an award? <laughs> then we have to make it an order. That's what yeah. it sounds like. Okay. Exactly. Okay. So that's not a complicated process there. It doesn't sound like. No. So um, can you speak a little bit too, though, just what people's options are if the person on the other side is not following a court order, or in this case, um, an arbitrator's award that has been converted to an order? What, are they, what can they do? If it's been converted to an order already, mm -hmm. well, I think at that, I mean, the, the arbitrator no longer has um, any jurisdiction to do anything once the award is issued. Um, they become, the word is functus, so uh, they're no longer involved and you can't come back to them um, unless it's just a point of clarification. So once it's in an order, I mean, you would just have the usual civil enforcement process. So if it's property um, through yeah, civil enforcement, and if it's support through maintenance. And if it's parenting? Contempt, I guess. <laughs> if someone's not following a parenting uh, order. Just like any time that any of us might have to go into court because someone's not following a parenting order, it would just be the same process. Yeah, and in your experience, what does that process look like? After an award has been turned into 
Well, I mean, An even order? your experience, your experience as a lawyer, where you've had to go and asking for a finding of contempt or just trying to get somebody to follow the order. Yeah. Um, so this is not, I haven't had this specific to an arbitration awards. Um, yeah, contempt. I haven't done a ton of contempt applications. They're, it's very dramatic. <laughs> uh, I usually try to find a solution before I get to that point. Um, and when I've had contempt orders granted, it's usually been in respect of like failure to provide financial disclosure, things like that, not so much with parenting. If it's uh, if it's a parenting issue, obviously you have the option of trying to get a police enforcement clause. That's probably where I would start before jumping to contempt. Um, but again, courts aren't really too enthusiastic on those these days. They're really trying to get people to behave and sort their problems out without having the RCMP pick up their kids. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so I think you would just be stuck with the same process that all of us lawyers have to go through to enforce uh, parenting orders. Yeah, and just for the benefit of our listeners, what uh, the options are for a contempt, a finding of contempt, the, the penalties are, can be a, a fine, and the most extreme is you can, you can do jail time. You can get put in jail if you're found in contempt. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm sure that's very rare. I don't think it's the court would be very um, reticent to throw someone in jail for for that. They'd try everything they could before that. But um, I think usually what happens, so I've been told because I haven't gone for uh to find someone in contempt either. But what I've been told by other lawyers that have had that experience is that usually what's going to happen is first the lawyer will, or the, the judge will give them a, you know, a stern talking to, say smart up, follow the order, or you'll get found in contempt. Um, and then, you know, if it comes back a second time, they might do something a little more drastic. And in parenting, this can be as, if somebody refuses to follow a parenting order, one of the things that a court can do is just change the parenting and decision-making um, arrangement because the person not following the order can't be trusted to do what's in the best interest of the children. So um, anyways, little sidebar that, came, that I just wanted to get your input on, Catherine. Kim, you've been sitting yeah. there. I've seen you a, a few times with a question on your lips. I have a lot of questions. They're, they're like the simple questions, not the lawyer questions. Yeah, those are the best kind. Lawyer questions are annoying. So, so what I'm, I'm trying to sort around in my head is it, it sounds like people need to come up with their financial disclosures and, and get pretty organized before they're coming in front of an arbitrator because of what you said at the beginning, Catherine, about people presenting things in sort of like this, this clean, tidy way and being clear about what the actual issues are so you know which issues to address. I'm just trying to figure out, like, is this a process really good for organized people? And then for people who aren't as organized, it maybe won't go in their favor as much. Have you seen that scenario? I, I haven't really been a part of an arbitration where anyone was really disorganized. Um, I think I've seen different levels of preparation from lawyers, not from parties. Um, but that's not unusual. I think as an arbitrator, if you're dealing with people that don't have lawyers, you're probably having to do a little bit more of the 
direction about what you want or what you need, um, which may be not exactly your role, but as a lawyer, you know, if you're being asked to make a decision about property, you may want to say, okay, this is what I, as an arbitrator, this is what I need from you. I need a list of your property and I need the values and I need to know who's keeping what. And that's a starting point because the average person who hasn't been divorced or isn't a lawyer and hasn't spent a day sitting in court, they may not even know what's relevant. Right. I, I encounter that all the time. People call me before they contact a lawyer saying, what do I need to put together? And to me, this is very valuable because it sounds like in arbitration, it's the same stuff. You've got to get your ducks in a row and, and make things really, really clear. That, which kind of gets me thinking another on like, this is kind of veers off sideways here, but what if one party, can you, can you do arbitration? If one party's not really participating, can you just select arbitration? And if your spouse doesn't show up, then you're with the arbitrator. They hear your side and they make their, their judgment. <laughs> Short answer. No, can I do that? <laughs> both parties have to agree to submit to arbitration. And they both have to be in the room. So let me, let me add a little layer to that question though, Catherine. So um, I think what Kim just described is possible to happen where there is a agreement in place. And in the agreements that I'm drafting these days, I'm always giving the clients an option to, to basically turn it into an arbitration agreement. So that if something goes off the rails, they have to try dispute alternative dispute resolution first. If those fail, unless it's an emergency, they have to go to arbitration. There's the rules they're going to follow. It's going to be governed by, by these rules. It's going to have, the, the seat is in this city and they got to go to arbitration. They can't go to court unless it's, you know, a, an emergency. So in that kind of a situation where they've signed an arbitration agreement and maybe it's not on the top of their mind anymore because it's, let's say, five, ten years down the road, then what? Oh my God, Evan. <laughs> um, well, I like your idea about those clauses. Um, I, I honestly don't know. I don't know what I would do if one person just didn't show up. I think what you would need to do, um, I don't know, maybe you'd have to bring an application and get an order confirming that both parties have to attend. I, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I'd have to ask someone more experienced than me if they've ever uh, encountered that. And I will do that. I'll let you know. Oh, oh. That'd be great. And maybe we can uh, throw that in our show notes when we get the mm -hmm. answer. And, and, you know, sorry for putting you on the spot. <laughs> I got no warning about that question. I just, uh, it's something I've kind of wondered as I put these clauses in my agreements. Yeah. Like, hmm, I wonder how this would work in practical application. Uh, Sorry for putting you on the spot, but I appreciate that's it. That's okay. No, that's okay. It's an interesting question. Uh -huh. I just don't know. I have no idea. This, this arbitration sounds great to me. Before, like coming into this podcast today, I was thinking, oh, you know what? I don't know if I'd want to put my decision making capabilities to just one person. But the way you're talking is like you, you get to choose that person. You're involved. They're going to make a reasonable judgment based on the information, based on hearing, like from what you're saying, 
most arbitrators have had lots of experience as family lawyers. They, they have a ton of experience behind them to make a good judgment. So I'm thinking like, this sounds amazing. Like if, if it's popular in Calgary, we need to make it popular in Edmonton too. So um, am I right with all that? Does that sound correct? <laughs> yeah, that really does sound correct. And I think, I think that um, the more momentum it gets, you know, it, the better it's going to be for our court system here too. It, just think about how how much work that could take away from the court and from the judges, right? Like that's just so, if we could start pushing people in, even if they could avoid like 30 trials a year, uh-huh. right? That would make a huge impact. Uh-huh. Yeah, huge. And, uh-huh. I, and the frustrating thing for me, I, I haven't done any arbitrations, but it's not for lack of trying. Um, I don't go to court that often either, but, um, you know, I have one right now that's in this court system and hopefully it gets resolved outside of it. We're still working on that. But, you know, before I made an application to take it to court, I was writing the other side saying, and we're, we're down for arbitration. Um, if you are too, just let us know. Heck, you can pick the arbitrator. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just no response. And so then we're left... We're left because arbitration, you have to both, like Catherine was saying, you have to both agree to do it. And if you don't, and you need a third party decision maker, well, then you have to go to court. And we've already said lots of things about how we feel about court decisions. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm, I have no problem going to court. It's a big part of my practice, obviously. Um, I love collaborative law. I think that that can work for a lot of people. I think also being part of being an effective lawyer is knowing when litigation is inevitable and moving that forward. Um, but I, I find it very frustrating when people uh, would rather go to court and rather push it two years down the road rather than just getting a well-informed decision. It's really at the end of the day a very similar process. You're still going to put your evidence before a third party decision maker. That person's going to make a decision based on that evidence. And you're going to have a final decision to walk away with. I just don't know why anyone would want to go to a trial. And I can say in my experience, there is not a single arbitration I've done where the cost of the arbitrator would have been more than what it would cost to go to trial on that matter. So that argument that, you know, oh, I don't want to pay for the arbitrator. When you look at the time it takes to get to a trial and all of the other steps and, you know, preparing to formally enter evidence and abide by the rules of evidence, like it's just, it's way more work for a lawyer. So it's way more cost. Even if you're not paying the judge, it's always going to be more cost to go to a trial. Mm-hmm. Always. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I have a question for you, Catherine. So, you know, I mean, we've talked a little bit so far on our previous episodes of like what processes are good for certain things. Um, And you mentioned, you know, litigation sometimes just has to happen. Collaborative family law is good for some people. Are there any topics or situations that you would identify or flag as perhaps not being appropriate for arbitration for any reason? Um, I, I think the only thing that comes to mind, 
and this would be the case with any non-court process, would just be um, flagging any history of family violence where it would be inappropriate to have two people sitting in the same room. Um, obviously, if you're going to court, that's sometimes going to be inevitable. Right. Um, but in arbitration as well, you know, as I'm as I'm saying this out loud, you you can agree as um, as the parties to the arbitration where it's going to take place, and maybe one person is appearing by webcam or whatever the case may be, so that they don't have to actually be physically in the same place. Whereas if you go to court, you're both going to need to be there except in COVID times, which, uh -huh, uh -huh. you know, may be different, but um, there's nothing really that comes to mind other than that. I mean, that's just the main thing that as a family lawyer, we always want to try to be cognizant of uh -huh. and flag that if it's an issue, we always ask in every consult, initial consult, if there's any history of family violence that we need to be mindful of. Okay. And even if there is, it doesn't necessarily disqualify it from arbitration, but it's something that you, you might be mindful of then process wise. Yeah. The one um, that I have uh, had in arbitration, the while I've had there, there is a history um, of, of family violence and it, the arbitration is actually sort of proceeding um, caucus style. So mm. the parties aren't attending zoom at the same time. And uh, I'm, I'm going back and forth, which is interesting, but it's the process that the parties have agreed on and they're both comfortable with it. And, and they're getting decisions and moving forward. So it's been really effective, um, even with that present, but it, it's certainly something that, yeah, we changed the process to accommodate. So. So Heather, can you just explain mm -hmm. a little bit more what caucus style means? Oh, <laughs> um, just where, I, I mean, I think more traditionally it would be the decision maker or the mediator that would be going between the parties. But rather than sitting in the same room, you might have each person in their own room or each person, their lawyer in their own room. And then you go between them and communicate and have discussions with one and then go to the other um, trying to see if that there, if there's any common ground or or anything that can be negotiated yeah which is a common technique where things start to get heated which tends to happen in family law situations mm -hmm. okay. and that can happen in a negotiation or mm -hmm. or any type of dispute resolution process yeah i really like it in jdr some ju judicial dispute resolution some judges don't like to do it but one of the benefits of that is for the parties each individually here, you know, this is what I think the weaknesses of your case are. And here's where I think you need to move a bit. And it can be way more impactful when the other person isn't there, doesn't create that power imbalance in the room. Mm. Um, I really like it. I've always found it to be very effective when I've been as a lawyer in situations like that, when uh, a judge speaks with just my client and me separately, you know, if there's something my client doesn't want to hear, so be it, but at least they've heard it and then they can move forward in the process with that information. Yeah. Yeah. And they can sort of share information too, without immediate reaction from the other person too. So they know the decision makers hearing it, the decision maker then makes the call on how or if or whatever to present to the other side. So yeah, that can all can deescalate situations and take some of that heat out of them. Hey, yeah. Kim, you looked like you had another question or comment. No, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm loving all of this. Trying this, is to get all in there. <laughs> this is all stuff I didn't know. I think 
probably there's a lot of lawyers who might want to listen to this too, just because it, it is sounds like a fairly un not uncommon, but it's just not as rampant as the other styles of uh, negotiating through a divorce. So I think this is really interesting. And the only thing that comes to mind is where do I find an arbitrator? If if they're, if it's not as popular in Edmonton, is there a website for arbitrators, like an association where we can look at pictures and like see if there's a certain style to one arbitrator or like a certain, as you alluded to before, specialty and maybe family law versus other law where would we find where would we find you Catherine and your your pals <laughs> well um that's an interesting question because unless this has recently changed there actually isn't a comprehensive list um available on the internet so it's a problem i mean i wish we that's could ridiculous it is ridiculous um uh-huh. i found a silly. list somewhere i think it was on maybe on the Adria website, um, but it wasn't comprehensive. Even just by looking at it, I could see that there were a lot of people missing. There's also a difference between QARBs, qualified arbitrators, and um, just any other lawyer that does arbitration. As I said, I uh, perhaps ignorantly did not know that you could be an arbitrator without actually having arbitration training, but there are lawyers who've been doing it for so long. Um, so it's not a comment on their abilities. It's just a fact. You don't actually have to have that designation, um, but you can tell uh, the people who have done the training will have the Q arb um, in front of their, after their name. Um, and it just means you have to apply uh, through Adria to get that designation. Um, so no, to answer your question, there is not, unless that has changed recently, there is not a comprehensive list. So a lot of it is word of mouth. Um, most lawyers in Edmonton are going to know who does arbitration, but a lot of it's just exchanging information. If the clients express interest in it, and I would usually say, here are three that I would agree to use, and they might say three other ones, and you eventually just try to whittle it down. But there have been people that I've learned are arbitrators, and I had no idea. So, now it is, it is ridiculous that there isn't a centralized <laughs> list. But now we say that um, I know Ken Ken Proudman launched a website recently. You're right. He probably has a list. He probably does. It just yes. ask Ken. <laughs> yeah. There is there is a list that has definitely been distributed through his website called. Um, Family Council, that's a website for lawyers, though. Yes. Well, like, I've got that list. But he just launched another website. Um, do you guys know oh. about this? I'm, I'm looking for right now. I have, uh, I'm a member of that website. And I think it had something to do with easy access to, like, lists of arbitrators and stuff. But um, no, you guys aren't, that's not ringing a bell? Well, we can, we can put it, post it with our video when we find it. Yeah, we can definitely dig for that a little more. Uh, I believe I got a list through our collaborative association. I thought, I think somebody said it's a secret list though. So I'm not sure if I'm allowed to share my secret list of arbitrators. <laughs> it doesn't sound like something you should be sharing. Like, yeah, I think there was a connotation on there. So I think you can find this website that's a little bit more public friendly and, um, and not get that out there. The not so secret <laughs> list of arbitrators. Oh. I, what it was, it's not about arbitrators per se, but it's albertalegal.org. 
I don't know about that. And this is, it's coaches and limited services. So I guess it's geared at finding professionals that offer legal services on a limited scope basis. I'm going to embarrassingly oh. admit that I'm actually a member of the board of that organization. And that's why I didn't twig because it's not, it's not, it's but, not arbitration. Yeah. Uh, it's generally, yeah, lawyers who are offering limit, limited scope services. So, but there's a resources tab on that website. Yeah. Okay. As a member of the board, Heather, I invite you. <laughs> check out our website more thoroughly no no to um <laughs> to put something on there for that oh okay. i mean ken, ken is uh is ken an arbitrator i know he's a mediator yes he an arbitrator as well yeah, right so um and by the way i think arbitrators in edmonton tend to be uh more reasonably priced than calgary and by the way, as Catherine said, you can do um, arbitrations remotely. You don't have to be in the same country as them. You can do it all by uh, web, by video conference. So, so what would be the hourly, would an hourly cost of an arbitrator be more than a family lawyer? Like I'm thinking anywhere between three and $600 an hour. Is that sort of, is that the range? What? Yeah, I don't think you're wrong, Kim. It's just yeah. that lawyers cost more in Calgary. They have higher hourly rates. So family lawyers in Calgary, I think you can expect to see between, you know, 200 on the very low side to easily 800 an hour, depending on the lawyer. I think that's a couple hundred dollars higher than Edmonton on hour. Like I think Edmonton, $400 an hour tends, I think tends to be kind of the average kind of sweet spot. Um, and, um, arbitrators post their rates and uh, the ones from Edmonton, I've seen a lot of them are around $400 an hour. That seems to be roughly the going rate. And these are very experienced uh, lawyers that are acting as arbitrators at that rate, which I think is pretty, a pretty good deal. This may have changed, but I remember seeing an informal list where there were some lawyers that had a lower hourly rate for arbitration versus litigation. Wow. So that was something at one time. I don't know if that's still the case, but, wow. but so Kim, I think well. the, sorry, the range of three to $600 an hour is accurate based on my experience with arbitrators. And um, the other thing that people need to remember is that it's split usually between the two parties. So it's not like you're paying that each of you on top of that. It's a, a divided cost. Hmm. I think that's exhausted my list of questions. So I, I'm, a, I'm excited for all the information that you shared today, Catherine. Thank you so much. My Catherine, pleasure. Is there anything that we didn't talk about that you've been like dying to, uh, to talk about to mention? No, I, I mean, I think we covered mostly everything. I'm happy I got a chance to push arbitration as a really good option. Um, I just really want to encourage everyone to consider that. I mean, especially in property disputes, um, it's such a better way than going through trial just in terms of efficiency and, and getting a resolution without having to wait for three years or two years or whatever, however long it's taking these days. I'm shocked every day by how much, 
uh, how backed up the court system is. So it's yeah, and, troubling. And clients with pressing issues are also shocked when they hear about how long it's going to take them to get a decision on something they need a decision on right now. Right. And then they think, how am I going to last for six months? Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm with you. I remember you and I talked about this about a year ago. Yes, we did. And uh, it was kind of the same venting along the same, same lines. Yeah. Lots changed in a year, that's for sure. Yeah, COVID wasn't a thing yet when we talked. It wasn't, no. Oh, wow, yeah. We I were going to we... go for a drink to talk about it, and then yeah. we're not allowed to see friends anymore, so. <laughs> Here we are on our four-way uh, four call. Uh, you know what? I have one more question um, that just occurred to me. I know that if you take a matter to court um, and you're convinced that you're, you know, kind of in the right and you are correct and the judge rules in your favor, that you can get some court costs for that. So um, it usually doesn't compensate you for like your whole lawyer bill or anything like that. But, you know, you might get a few hundred dollars or a few thousand dollars, depending on where you're at. Does that equivalent um, exist in arbitration or does the process even lend itself to that? Um, just is, yeah, I'm gonna end my question there. Yeah. Does that exist <laughs> in arbitration? <laughs> it does exist. And okay. all you have to do is add it as an item to be arbitrated. So you just, like we do in court, in court applications, we just say, and costs. I always tell my clients, just, we all just do it. It's just going to happen. Yeah. Um, so you just add that as an issue to be arbitrated, a matter of costs. And you can ask for solicitor client costs. You can ask for regular costs, whatever, okay. whatever makes sense under the circumstances. So as long as you give the arbitrator jurisdiction to make a decision on that issue, then mm -hmm. By all means. Okay. And then the other party just needs to agree that the arbitrator is also going to decide costs and Bob's your uncle. They can decide that then at the end of the day. That's right. Okay. Interesting. Thanks well, for answering that. That brings up a follow-up question. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, while the courts have, it's very clear the courts have wide discretion when deciding that type of a cost award. They tend to not exercise that discretion very often. They tend to really like to stick to this specific schedule that is in the rules that tells them, based on this happening, uh, this is the appropriate award, which was recently updated, but it had not been updated for I don't know how long. So generally, the courts just follow this schedule that tells them what to do. Uh, they, they don't have to, but generally they do. What about arbitrators? Obviously, they're not bound by those rules because those are rules of court. We've already talked about how those don't necessarily apply unless you decided you wanted them to apply. Right. Well, so you still have to, as the arbitrator, take the arguments that are put before you. So I would say, in my opinion, that arbitrators don't have the same broad jurisdiction that judges do to make costs awards like you have to you can't do something different like I said before you can't choose a third option um, that's different from what the two parties have asked of you um, when it comes to costs I mean I think if someone's asking for solicitor client costs and the test isn't met well there's your answer then they may order less than that um, whether 
someone wants to go way outside, you know, depending on what column you're in in the Schedule C, um, I, my opinion is that you wouldn't have jurisdiction to do that. I mean, this is something I might ask another arbitrator to see what they think. Um, costs in my experience have not come up a lot. In one that I did last year, costs were an issue, but the parties decided at the end that they didn't want a decision on costs. They just kind of agreed that it was mixed success and that they weren't going to waste money making further submissions. Because obviously in an arbitration, if your award isn't coming until later, it's hard to make cost submissions when you don't know what the outcome is, right? So uh -huh. that's generally going to require a second round of submissions, whether it's written submissions or um, oral submissions to the arbitrator. So in that case, the people said, you know what, we've got our decision. It was, no one got a mega slam dunk. It was just kind of mixed success. Let's just leave it and move forward. Huh. Okay, that's interesting and, and really good information to know um, for people who are listening and lawyers too, to make sure to um, tag that on at the beginning in that agreement to arbitrate um, so that if you do want to bring it up, that's something that you don't want to miss out on, I suppose, if you're quite convinced that your party's in the right or... Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Thanks so much for coming on, Catherine. I hope you'll, uh, I hope you'll come on again. I would love to. This has been fun. You get like OG guest status. Yay. Yeah. Well, very special. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much for coming. It was lovely to see your face. Always lovely to see yours, my friend. <laughs> Any information in this video is general information only and is not nor is it intended to be legal advice. Watching this video does not create a lawyer-client relationship. You should always seek the advice of a lawyer or other qualified professional for advice regarding your individual situation. While we take care to ensure that the information contained in this video is accurate and up-to-date, we make no warranties or representations as to the suitability, completeness, or accuracy of the information contained in this video. Any reliance you place on the information is at your own risk. Kahane Law Office, Merrick Law, Heather Mallorick Professional Corporation, Evan Clark Professional Corporation, Evan Clark, Heather Mallorick, and any guests will not be responsible nor liable in any way for any content, including but not limited to any errors or omissions in the content, or for any loss or damage of any kind incurred as a result of any content communicated in this video, whether by Evan Clark, Heather Mallorick, or by a third party. Kim McDonald is a financial advisor with Raymond James Limited. Information provided is not a solicitation, and although obtained from sources considered reliable, is not guaranteed. The view and opinions contained in this media are those of Kim McDonald, not Raymond James Limited. Securities-related products and services are offered through Raymond James Limited, member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Insurance products and services are offered through Raymond James Financial Planning Limited, which is not a member Canadian Investor Protection Fund. Raymond James advisors are not tax advisors, and we recommend that clients seek independent advice from a professional advisor on tax-related matters. Stole my heart from my lips. That was it.